everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Our guests today are Harsh Sinner and Steve Norday from Wise. Harsh is the Chief Technology Officer, and Steve is head of Wise Platform. Wise has built a leading cross-border payments network and processes nine billion pounds in cross-border payments every month on behalf of over 16 million customers. In today's episode, we discuss how Wise have put an API around their cross-border payment infrastructure so that they can offer it to banks and non-banks via Wise platform, how Wise is able to achieve such low transaction costs, the friction that still exists in cross-border payments today and the role that crypto solutions will play in the future, and much more. Hi, Harsh and Steve, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? I am in London, in our offices. Yeah, hi, I'm, I'm also in London, in the same office, just a couple of rooms down. Um, so yeah, here in Shoreditch. I'm jealous. London is wonderful. Um, to start with, can you each give us a brief introduction about yourselves? I'm Harsh Sinha, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer here at Vice. I've uh, been with Vice for eight and a half years, uh, through the time uh, Wise has grown quite a bit. Uh, and before Wise, I was in the Bay Area with EB and PayPal for about 10 years building products um, and teams across the world. Yeah, thanks, Lash. Hi, I'm, I'm Steve. Uh, I've been at Wise for seven or eight years now, um, and I look after our Wise platform, which is our, our B2B offering, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, today. But yeah, uh, uh, been here been here eight years or so. And I think most of our listeners would be familiar with WISE. So you built a leading cross-border payments network and your IPO on the London Stock Exchange took place in 2021. So it's really exciting to have the opportunity to chat to both of you today. Um, WISE has come a long way since it launched over a decade ago as a money transfer service. Hush, can you give a brief overview of what WISE now does today? Yeah, so... We started off to solve a problem that basically our founders had around moving money across borders, mainly started off moving money between the UK and Europe. Um, and what started as started off as a personal problem, they realized very quickly was a large problem for a lot of consumers. So as you said, we were mostly for the first eight years of our existence, mainly a money transfer service. We iterated from to solving the problem for consumers to also moving to helping businesses and mainly SMBs solve the same problem. But over time, as we talked to our customers, we realized there were other things they wanted us to solve for them, uh, mainly around how they manage their finances across the world. And this now has iterated our product to a place where we have what we call the WISE account, which allows you to hold uh, funds or currencies, like 52 different currencies. Um, across the world and also gives you account details. So ability to receive money uh, with local account details in nine different countries. So you could be sitting in Europe and have an ACH routing number and account number in the US where you can do business uh, using in the US, uh, receive funds and pay funds. And then on top of that, we also give you a wise card, which is a debit card. So basically it becomes a one-stop shop for allowing you to hold spend, receive, and send funds across the world if you're doing anything in um, cross-border payments, basically. And then finally, our third pillar is um, um, Wise Platform, which Steve uh, runs. And basically what we realize is the infrastructure we've built over the last 12 years, we put an API around it and we expose that to other partners like banks and other service companies who want to provide cross-border services. 
and they can use the same infrastructure we build upon. Yeah, I'd love to hear more from Steve as well about like exactly what Wise Platform does, what some of the examples of use cases are, and how it originated. Yeah, we we power now um, uh, kind of banks, uh, large fintechs, and other enterprises who, who like Harsh said, really want to uh, embed their best-in-class cross-border payment experiences, whether that's sending or receiving or spending, into the products they have built. Basically, it's taking our infrastructure to where these customers already are, to the tools, the, the providers, the companies that they already use every day. It's much more convenient to send money from from your bank than it is to to kind of have to sign up to always to do that. So, can we leverage our infrastructure to take this to where where customers already are? And uh, it started in, in quite a funny story actually. Um, we just launched in Hungary at, at a market in Europe, and we saw this massive uptick in customers coming from one bank, quite a small bank. It was nice, but a little confusing. So we called up the customers and said, why, why are you using us? Said, Thanks for using us, but, but how did you hear about us? And it turned out their bank actually was recommending them to use WISE. They'd realized their own offering was so slow, painful, expensive, costly to process. They said, just just go to use WISE instead. It's better for you, better for us. Um, so we, called up the bank and said, you know, we should do something together. Thanks for sending us your customers. But actually, why why make you do that? Why don't we build a product with you so that they don't have to come to Wise and we build that in the app? And that's what sparked this idea for, for Wise Platform, uh, building that, exposing that API layer for uh, making it easier for customers to do this in the tools they're already using. And I think you mentioned that you partner with providers such as Google Wallet and Xero. What does this sort of look like? Yeah, they're two good examples, right? So Xero uh, is an accounting software. So if you're a business, your accounting software knows everything about your financials, how much money you have, what you owe, who you owe. And historically, that's kind of where it begins and ends is, is doing your finances. But what Xero have done is uh, they know the bills you have to pay because you upload your your invoices and your bills to, to the tool. Uh, and together, we've built a flow where you can actually now pay for that bill within the financial accounting software. So rather than having to go to your bank to to send the money to actually pay the bill and come to your accounting software and click, yes, I've paid, you can complete that all from within within zero. So it's a great example of that kind of convenience that that, that can be generated. So tools like zero accounting software, payroll companies, spend management companies, uh, a similar similar kind of concepts, but as well as for consumers. So Google, Google Pay is another great example where uh, you know they have a lot of the customers' financial life already through through the Google Pay wallets and products like that. Adding cross-border products into that, powered by Wise, is a pretty pretty cool way to expand that without having to spend the twelve years we've spent building out that infrastructure. You get the the best in class through through a single API, which is pretty uh, pretty exciting for them as well. Absolutely, and with Wise, I know that more than fifty percent of payments at the moment are processed instantly. What friction does still exist in cross-border payments today? So we're 50%, 55%, I think, instant now. The payments that are not instant are typically where there's no instant infrastructure. So WISE works by uh, leveraging instant real-time domestic payment schemes in the countries we operate. That could be faster payments in the UK, fast in Singapore, MPP in Australia, those, those instant schemes. Uh, not every country has has an instant scheme yet, or, or one that supports supports cross border fully. So uh, as that continues to grow, as more countries roll out these schemes, uh, we'll be able to to make these payments faster. 
and get that closer from 55 to 60 and up ultimately up to to 100%. So part one is is the lack of infrastructure in certain places. There's obviously other points of friction in the flow like um, compliance screening. You know, we need to to make sure the money that's moving through our platform is 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 good money uh, and, and compliant funds. And sometimes that means we need to to pause money to to run checks like any other financial institution. So our job is to make those checks as automated, as fast, and as streamlined as possible to again help those uh, run those checks in real time, but help not suspend money and help make sure that it's getting to customers as quickly as quickly as we can. So a combination of the infrastructure, uh, money coming in and money going out. Does that support instant funds movement, as well as app processing speed and uh, time internally? And uh, Harsha the test, we've done a huge amount of incredible technical work over the years to allow us to process those funds, run those checks in real time, in milliseconds, to allow that to be processed instantly. Do you expect that more payments will be instant in the future? And what's Wise's ambition around that? Yeah, so I think... Um... We definitely will have more payments instant in the future. As Steve said, the way we are building this network is basically connecting local payment rails across the world. So naturally, as other payment systems in each country get faster and cheaper, we get those benefits. A classic example is the US. So while the US is ahead in a lot of things, in payments, unfortunately, the US is pretty behind. Um, so we have RTP in the US and Fed now is going live this year, but generally, the prevalence of instant payments really for a US resident is still like you know, a pretty big shocker as in like you're surprised when it happens. Um, and when it's, um, and it's also pretty expensive still. So generally, I think things will improve. And as things improve in the US and other payment systems across the world, we should see more instant payments as a percentage of total cross-border payments. Not only advice, but generally that's the direction the industry is headed. Um, and then also on looking at the ambition we have, we believe that we can build a system or a network where pretty much all payments are within 20 seconds. If you think about how the technology should be built and is built behind these payments, eventually these are just information, so bits of information flowing across the network. And if you can send a much larger email, which has a lot more information instantly, um, payments messages are actually pretty small. So there's no reason why they cannot be done instantly. The friction is in things like what Steve said, the different checks you have to run, the compliance regime that we have worked through, the regulatory requirements we have. Those checks are the ones that usually slow other providers down, along with the traditional system that exists right now to move money across borders is usually the correspondence system where you have multiple hops across multiple banks. The more middlemen there are, the slower things are. So we hope to uh, cut those middlemen out and build a close network, which allows us to then control the quality of service we provide. That makes sense. So crypto has also demonstrated a use case in um, cross-border payments. What do you think that the future of cross-border payments will look like and how will this impact how WISE operates? Yeah, so crypto is definitely an uh, evolving space. Um, you know, There's a lot of uh, news and stuff happening over the last few years on it, but Generally, in cross-border, the reality is we've seen crypto not be used really as a payment method, per se. Mostly, people who are dabbling in crypto are mostly still dabbling it, in it from an asset class perspective. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. And when I say, you know, I'm talking about like the next five to seven years. So what was interesting was the experiment that was uh, done in El Salvador, 
2021, the president made Bitcoin legal tender alongside USD. Uh, but if you look at the reality of what's happened since then, is 80% of the businesses in El Salvador have still not done any transactions on Bitcoin or any other. So do we believe that there will be a global currency that will be a crypto-based currency that will be used for most cross-border payments? I don't think so. Like whoever controls the currency controls the monetary policy of the country and central governments and central banks are not incentivized to lose control over that. The other bit is around, can we use crypto as payment rails? So can we use um, crypto as the mode of exchange on the underlying rails, but then on top you're still converting back to USD or GBP or Singapore dollars. So far what we've seen is that while some of the newer technology is being built on the blockchain crypto, settlements might be faster than say Bitcoin or ETH. The cost of converting on each side to move from crypto to fiat is still pretty high, actually higher than what we can do with just moving fiat to fiat. So for now, what we see is while things can change, you never know. But in the next five to seven years, I can't see a single global currency that is all crypto-based moving across borders or having underlying rails running on all cross-border payments in crypto. There could be some use cases, like especially in Africa and other places where the volatility is so high on the local currencies that people might hold their funds in this asset class and then they swap that um, asset across each other. But that's a small use case of the total volume moving across the world. And switching gears a little bit, Hush, I'd love to hear about how you approach building the engineering team at WISE. Like, how is this structured with regard to product and design and how has this approach changed as WISE has scaled? Yeah, so, you know, we work in cross-functional teams. So our goal is that every team runs as a small startup within WISE and they have a specific mission and a vision uh, and they have specific KPIs that they're chasing. And this is a fully cross-functional team. So you have engineers, product, design, analyst. If they need lawyers, they can go hire lawyers. If they need compliance people, they can go hire compliance people. And all of that budget and all of that resourcing more or less comes from the same pool. And the idea here is like the team should be fully staffed and equipped as a vertical unit to solve the problem for their customer. And they have to be very clear who the customer is. So for example, if you are the team responsible for launching and iterating wines in Australia, your key uh, key performance indicator would be how many new users you're bringing on every month, what we call MNUs, and then how much volume are you generating to the product for Australians. And then they're fully um, allowed to bring in new payment methods, do integrations directly into NPPSD, which is the faster payment rails there, and they decide their own you know, trajectory and what they want to invest in. Um, and that's how we structured the team. So this has been true since we were four or five teams, and now we have about 100, over 100 teams, and this has scaled pretty well. Um, and we don't see why we would not continue to scale in this way. And this allows the teams to hire smart people and apply themselves to a problem. And they're very clear, uh, clear who their customer is, and they have a direct relationship getting feedback from their customers, and they trade the product. Um, from a setup perspective on engineering specifically, oh, we have gone much more distributed, so we are across the world. We have seven engineering offices. And again, the key here is we feel while about 70% of our product is global, so we built a lot of the stuff in one um, way, about 30% of our product is very localized. So you know, if you go to Asia today, 
Um, Asia is so far ahead in QR code payments and different payment methods. Uh, while if you're in the US, people are still on, stuck on cards. Um, so that's a very big nuance. And if you don't live in Asia, you will never understand how the payments and ecosystem and the economy is moving along. So that's why we want to hire engineers and builders in these different locations so they can bring us that local flavor and continue to evolve the product. Harsh, WISE has a competitive advantage in terms of offering lower transaction costs. How has WISE been able to achieve this? For example, is it through operational efficiencies or is it driven by how your backend tech infrastructure is structured? Yeah, I think um, there's many things that drive that operational cost to be much lower. Um, so one definitely is the tech that powers WISE. So we started off much later than um, the other banks. So we actually not settled with uh, negative technology. We are, you know, building cutting edge uh, services and we're pretty lean on how you know, we built our backer infrastructure. But the second thing is um, our investment and obsession, I would say, in going deeper into the big markets. So for example, we became the first non-bank to connect to UK's faster payment scheme. Uh, we did the same that I in Hungary, in Europe, in Singapore, and soon we'll be there in Australia. Every time we remove middlemen, so usually most payment providers use other banks to get access to the scheme. And obviously, if you have a middleman, then they will charge you a fee for this access. By being directly integrated, not only do we get the instant payments we've been talking about, but also like really, really low fees because these schemes are pretty efficient at the scale they run. That, then we take this... Um, savings and we give it back to our customers. So give some context. When we connected directly, by the time we connected directly to UKFPS, um, we were doing about 35 to 40 pence on a transaction using partners. And once we connected directly and we were running our own direct connection, we would spend about four pence per transaction. So like a 10x uh, difference. And then that also gives us independence in the market so that you know, we now control our destiny markets and then we turn around and get the savings back to our customers and we can draw fees. So we don't believe in building this idea of loss leading products or like cost subsidizing because we don't think that's a sustainable way to build the business. So we really drop prices when we have figured out how to drop costs. And the last bit I think which a lot of people ask me this question, um, why are we much cheaper than banks, is we have built a global network. So the data sets that we can see across all the routes that we have money moving on and how our customers are onboarding. Uh, we have a very large global data set on top of which we can run ML models, and whether it's our treasury business or whether it's our fin crime or financial crime fighting teams. They have access to all this data versus usually if you, let's say, are moving money even between a large bank like HSBC, they have different branches. And data is actually trapped in these different systems in their own silos. So you can't run the same operational efficiencies and they can make the same decisions that we can because we have this data. So over time, I think WISE will be as much a data play as a payments play. And do you expect that WISE will be able to push prices lower in the future? So I guess, for example, how much of WISE's costs relate to fixed costs where WISE can get economies of scale with increased volume versus transaction level costs that might be harder to budge? Yeah, I mean, that's part of our mission. Uh, so we definitely want to bring it um, to a point where you feel like moving money across borders is feels essentially free, like it's so cheap. Transactional costs go down every time we remove partners. So as I said, that the example of going direct, uh, we can definitely have a big impact that that will happen. 
And then, as you said, economies of scale do come through when we continue to get more volume and onboard more and more customers than some of the fixed costs, whether it's like how we look at our infrastructure or how our technology is deployed, our data centers, and those things get spread across many, many customers and many, many transactions. And then finally, I think um, the bits that Steve and team are doing around Wise Platform, for example, that also gives us a very big advantage because if you think about Wise and the Wise API connected to a bank, those banks have already done KYC checks and onboarded the customer, check their passport, check their driver's license. So we don't have to do it again. And that already is a big part of a servicing cost. So we can actually remove that cost immediately. And that allows us to reduce prices for customers too. Do you think that there's any risk that competitors, pledges banks, will offer similar price levels to WISE, either through somehow finding a way to be more operationally efficient across borders or through pricing at a loss? Yeah, I think banks is an interesting, um, have an interesting problem. Um, generally, banks have a lot of things that they technically give away for free, but that free offering is actually paid for by something else. And usually at a bank, the two big money makers are the lending business and the FX business. So they have this problem where they've got people like us and others who are competing on price, providing the FX business in a very competitive rate, a better experience. And they can try and drop the fees and prices, but then how would they supplement that somewhere else to then continue to provide other services for the price they're providing? So I think that's the big problem they have, along with the other bits I talked about, which is the technology that they're running, the cost of running operations. They're much more manual and a lot of things that we do automate in an automated manner. So I'm not too sure if banks will be able to compete at the scale at which we are moving. Um, there might be other players, like you know, who could follow the playbook that we've been following. So that's what we obsess about, is like, are we missing something uh, as we build WISE? And could somebody else come in with a newer insight that we may have missed, which allows them to be faster and cheaper and could they get the mission faster than we do? Um, I think we are at a scale big enough now that, um, um, you know, it, it is a scale business, like payments is always a scale business. Um, the more volume we get, we have those econo- economies of scale. But that's what we obsess a little more when we look at competition. And then generally, I think loss leading um, pricing doesn't really work. So the one thing that we have an advantage on is like we're a profitable business and we're here to stay now. So we're sustainable, so we'll continue to iterate on dropping prices and we'll be making things faster. So if somebody wants to come in and undercut by raising a lot of money and acquiring customers over time, they'll have to uh, raise prices because um, this is not sustainable. Steve, you've overseen the growth of Wise Platform since its inception. The enterprise customers that you're selling to here are quite different from the individuals and small businesses using Wise's other products. How did you approach developing and building the platform? And is what Wise platform looks like today what you originally envisioned when you started on this journey? When we started this, we, we spent a lot of time with, with, with banks in particular trying to understand what it, what it is they would want from Wise, right? What is it that they would want from our infrastructure? And, and what we heard a lot of is uh, part of it's the payment rails, these cheap, fast payments that that, that we've talked about. Uh, but a lot of it's all the other thousands and tens of thousands of things that make WISE special from uh, parts of the operations, uh, treasury, liquidity management, through to some of the more uh, front-end parts. Right? 
how do we get the right information in front of the customers at the right time, ask for the right pieces of, of data from them, uh, the naming of the fields, the little tooltips, all those micro details that allow for high converting uh, world-class flow with uh, over 99% straight through processing. And that these are the details that you know the 16 million customers moving 9 billion pounds every month really use wise for. So we heard this a lot from partners is, is how do we get lots, lots of this stuff, not just payment rails access. Uh, which is is kind of commonly what other infrastructure players might might offer, and that's why why it's quite unique. Um, so we we basically did this by exposing all of our internal APIs uh, to partners. And so for partners today, they are the same endpoints that you would call that our own internal mobile apps use. So anything that you can build on our mobile apps, the partner can build as well. Uh, that's quite an in- intentional decision um, that that allows us to allow partners to build really, really awesome experiences, not just kind of access to, to payment APIs, but access to that full stack of wise through a single API and use as much or as little of that stack as they, as they need to for the problem they're trying to, they're trying to solve. So that was like the, the kind of broad direction we took in, in approaching it. Is it, is it what we originally envisioned? Uh, I'm always surprised by, uh, the things partners and others want to do, but rails, things we've never thought about, things we've never looked at before or considered, um, from the amazing ideas to the wacky ideas, all sorts of things. But that's the power of exposing this lets people uh, uh, take take control of what, what is it they're trying to solve for their customers. So I think a lot, a lot more broader use cases than, than we initially envisaged. But in terms of the products and building this network for banks uh, and others to, to power the world's money movements is, is still very much aligned with what we, we set out to achieve. And what's one of the biggest challenges that you faced trying to build and grow this? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, you always talk about uh, in these these enterprise uh, worlds, sales cycles are long. Um, you know, a bank might replace their international payments product every five to 10 years or consider updates every year from that kind of timeline. Um, and it's it's challenging sometimes to, to stay with that, stay with that cycle and, and, and come back uh, months after month, quarter after quarter. Uh, long term, this is obviously 100% uh, worse, it, but it's it's challenging to convince um, uh, partners that, that there's a need to act, there's a need to do something. If you're a bank and, and you see lots of this this volume moving away to to companies like Wise or, or others, why is why is now the time to act uh, to do something about that? And it's where where I emphasise a lot with with banks who have 250 products. Uh, uh, this is this is one of, of many decisions they're trying to take and things to prioritize. Um, and how we managed to get this uh, movement uh, and, and part of saying, actually, now is the time to act, to do something about that, is, uh, is always time. But uh, uh, that's, that's, what, that's what we're here to, to help partners understand better. And how did you think about scaling globally? Like, for example, how did the needs of the companies that you partner with vary across regions? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like I think Harsh mentioned earlier, when you go into different markets, uh, we're, we're not, uh, or, or I'm certainly not an expert on every single payments uh, market in the country in the world. And you learn something new about, about each market, uh, but that's the way customers like to interact with their money or uh, the down to the details of what, what word is used to describe a reference in certain markets, right? We're always learning those, those localization points. So part of the aim of, of, of kind of the product we offer is to allow for that flexibility. Right? Uh, these these endpoints can be constructed in any way to to build that flow and build that uh, the partner who has that local knowledge to build the flow they know is going to work 
for their customers. Right? They're, the, they're the experts in that. So empower them to, to do that. Um, the other challenge that comes with, with expansion is, of course, the regulatory environment of um, uh, what are we allowed to do? How do we work together? What, what are local regulations say on this? And this is where WISE has got quite a lot of experience. You know, we, we're licensed in, in countries all over the world. Um, and it's pretty awesome to see our teams work together internally to figure these new markets, whether it's a new market for WISE or a new market for our platform product, actually working quite quickly through what those requirements are, making sure we're building them into the product and making sure we're, we're working with partners to, to meet that. Um, I think that's just part of the nature of being a global cross-border business from, from day one. A lot of muscle there to to be able to do that effectively, um, but yeah, the, it's always surprising what you learn as you go into new markets about uh, uh, local local uh, differences and localizations. That um, yeah, we have to let partners let the character. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like Wise's platform offers are generally tailored to each specific company's needs, be it you know Google or Zero. How are you thinking about this as you scale Wise platform further? Yeah, I think about it more as, as not us tailoring the product uh, to their needs, but them tailoring our solution to the problem they're trying to solve. So if we can build these and offer these nice generic uh, set of, of, of uh, solutions and, and uh, features, they can be constructed in, in many different ways. Uh, whether WISE needs to be the entity that's doing the KYC and onboarding the customer, or whether the partner has already done that. And these kind of become configurations in, in, in this era. So we don't do custom work for partners. We don't build new things for each partner because this won't, won't scale at all. Um, but as I always say to the team, like if we need to do something new, build it as a feature, build it as a, as a, as a config option. Yeah? And then you can build up, stack up these configs or, or set of features and allow partners that customization of what it is they're trying to achieve, but within the frameworks of, of how the product is structured, rather than trying to build a super custom flow and write code to each individual partner, which will never scale and, and break quite quickly. Um, so it's all about setting those like Lego bricks, right? giving giving those bricks and allowing them to be constructed into any uh, any a weird and wonderful idea. Um, but having those those kind of core set of, of flows that are pretty similar by every partner that can be much more out of the box and work quicker. So they're kind of the pre-configured option or uh, start from scratch and, and then and, um, build yourself. And that's kind of how we think about the structure of the platform is is letting partners do that customization rather than building ourselves because that won't, that won't scale over time. Gotcha. So I imagine there was a bit of effort up front to kind of build a lot of those base Lego bricks and get them ready. But then ideally, once you've got kind of this collection, it makes it easier for people to pick what they pick what they need and make what they want. That makes sense. Exactly. Everyone's solving a slightly different problem with those different bricks. So let them choose the ones they need. I've heard also that your expecting platform to represent the majority of WISE's volume in 10 or so years. So what do you see as the biggest opportunities for WISE platform? Well, I hope so. Um, look, I think uh, WISE is, is a pretty, pretty one of the world's largest money movers today. A pretty large, large company in this space. But the space is so so big you know we move just less than a percent probably of the world's the world's money volume today flows through wise and the vast majority is is people sending through their banks still people and businesses sending through their banks so this is this is kind of definitely what we see as the biggest opportunity is is how do we power 
those flows in tools like banks where customers already are. Okay. And and I think that's that's kind of the space where we're really really excited about is, is building out that, that that network of banks as, as we go. So even though Lartwise is is a large company and moves a lot of money today, the space to grow into this is is significant. And I don't think we're going to do that by getting eight billion people and two hundred billion companies to download our app to come to us. The only way we'll we'll make that progress is by taking uh, our rails and our infrastructure to the places where these customers already are. And the biggest place where those money movements happen today is customers transacting within their banks. So I think that's definitely what we see as the biggest the biggest opportunity. And more broadly, um, perhaps for Harsh, where do you see Wise five years from now? Yeah, I think uh, Steve kind of shared some of the vision we have. So definitely we see the network that we've built continue to expand and get faster and cheaper to move money around the world. Uh, I see our Wise account, which is for consumers, one of the best accounts to hold as an international person if you're transacting in multiple currencies. Um, and that continue to grow a lot. Also, our business account offering, which is again for international businesses, also growing a lot. But in five to seven years, I hope that we have connected a few larger banks and more and more larger banks to the wife platform, which was give us this economies of scale and also giving us broader deployed coverage so we can reach a lot more people and solve their problems. And Hash, you did your MBA at Haas. What made you decide to get your MBA? And would you recommend that path for someone looking to get into a technical role, such as like a CTO role? So um, in all frankness, like partly why I went and did an MBA was just, uh, I was curious on what other things I could do. So I was definitely an engineer's engineer and, you know, building a lot of products and technology at uh, my previous roles. And I was wanting to explore, I was about 30, I was wanting to explore, like, should I be doing this for the rest of my life? Uh, there are other cool jobs I hear, like consulting or investment banking or other things that I, you know, I knew some friends doing this, but I didn't know what it meant. Uh, and at that point, I felt like, okay, go and explore, do something else. So I to Haas. I was able to do it while I was working, which is an amazing experience. Connected with some amazing, uh, very smart, talented people. But one gift that the MBA gave me was uh, I realized that neither was consulting for me, neither was investment banking for me. Uh, I was able to do some gigs uh, and consulting uh, through Haas. And I realized just that I would pick the right profession for myself <laughs> earlier on in my career, which was building products and scaling technology. Um, but I did uh, learn a lot. For example, I learned how to read a financial statement while I was in B school, which I didn't know when I was an engineer only. Um, I learned how to work through complex negotiations, through exercises that we did at, at you know at the earlier level in um, in Haas. Um, I did an incubation program in Haas, um, working with Steve Blank, who was basically one of the father of the Lean startup movement, um, who Eric Reeves uh, studied under at Stanford. So. Generally, I think it made me much more well-rounded. And uh, that has helped me being in a boardroom, being a company builder, uh, to get different perspectives and understand more domains than just technology. I think if you just want, if you want to be a CTO um, and a very technical one, then you don't need an MBA. Um, if you want to be a company builder who is working cross-functionally and looking externally and internally on how to scale a business, uh, it may help. But I also think it's the same as... Uh, maybe coming and working at a company like Wise or elsewhere, which is early stage and still growing very fast and has this 
idea of cross-functional teams that allow you to learn from other people and be put into different situations where you get to learn different things, not just your own discipline. That could be a way also to you know, progress very fast and be a company builder. So it just depends on what works for you. I think maybe 10 years ago, the avenues were um, more through the MBA, but now I think there's a lot of opportunities in learning this for the job. Makes sense. And Steve, what advice would you give to someone who ultimately would love to end up in a head of product type role? I think um, one, one of the things that, that I always advise uh, uh, people coming up in their product careers is, is, is really focus on the impact that you're having and kind of not too much else. And uh, a lot of the time that impact comes from things that might not be considered typical product work. So in, in likewise platform in, in a B2B space, um, if the product is there and the product is working, but it's not selling, your job is to go sell it right? and figure out. Uh, maybe there's something in how we're sending it. Maybe there's something we can improve in the messaging. By doing that, maybe you learn actually there's a feature that's missing or something that's not working. Maybe the blocker is you know, something in compliance. Uh, how do you how do you work through that and get it done? But if you think about that path to impact, whatever it is the metric, uh, the north star you're trying to aim for is, like just focus ruthlessly on that. Focus on moving that metric and do whatever is needed to move that product and uh, move that metric. Sorry, and whether that is a product piece of work or another piece, doesn't really matter. <laughs> the fastest way to impact is to move anything that's needed. Also, by doing that, you build this much nicer, rounded uh, perspective of everything, the commercial skills, the compliance skills, the legal skills that, that make people into awesome, well-rounded PMs. So that, that's always my advice, is figure that metric that you want to move and then do whatever is needed to move it, whether or not people want to call that product or not, doesn't, doesn't really matter. Uh, remove that noise and, and just focus on that. And the uh, People that do that are the ones, certainly wise, uh, and other places I've been where move to successful roles as, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello.